Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. All these girls gonna be in the league? Hello, gorgeous. Female fight club. All men must die, but we are not men. Damn it, Kristen! What do you think happened to Karen? Lauren. Girl, her name is Kimberly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame bonus episode. How many bonus episodes have we done? I think this is bonus episode four. Four sounds right. Four sounds right. We are talking all about bad times at the El Royale because we're us. And we've been waiting to talk about this for a while. I know I have. Since that first trailer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. We decided, I think when the first trailer came out, we said we were going to do a bonus episode. That was just a foregone conclusion. So We just assumed, yeah. (laughs) So here it is. Fair warning, we are going to be spoiling all sorts of stuff. So if you have not seen Bad Times at the El Royale, you should go see it. I've run out of people to take in my general bubble. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm looking for people. If you want to fly down to Sacramento, I will go see it with you and just probably get really giddy. It's great. So, Actually, I'm looking for people to take again, too. This would be time number three. Exactly. We're all trying. I'm trying to get three under the belt, and it's not happening. So... If you have not seen the movie, you should go see it and then come back and listen to this episode because we are going to spoil all sorts of stuff. And we're probably going to talk a lot of inappropriate delights. So you've been warned. (laughs) So Bad Times at the El Royale is written and directed by Drew Goddard. It's his follow-up to Cabin in the Woods. And it follows seven strangers with various secrets who all meet at a Lake Tahoe hotel called the El Royale that was once, what does he call it, the hidey hole for Tahoe Swells. Of course, it's run down now because they've prohibited drinking on the one side and just general stuff that's happening in 1969. And over the course of one night, all sorts of shit goes down and it's all kinds of awesome. And there's Chris Hemsworth. Just being delightful. So so Kim and I have seen this twice. Lauren and Karen have seen it once. But I've seen it twice in my heart. (laughs) In my imagination, I've seen some scenes numerous times. (laughs) I can tell you there is not a release date on Amazon for this, and I've already pre-ordered it. I don't care how much it costs. It'll be worth it. I don't care. Karen, what did you think of this in terms of how it was marketed? Did Did it pay off for you in the end? This is one of those films where I felt like the build-up to it was exactly the way it should have been. I just wish that more people knew about it. And I think part of the problem is that people just don't watch TV anymore, so they don't see commercials. (laughs) But, like, it was really funny because the night before I saw, or, I don't know, day or two before I saw this, I was at the same theater to see First Man. And it was, I actually saw First Man on the Thursday night, so big opening it's the first weekend and we walked up to the theater and outside it's this amc at this mall and there are these giant giant poster shapes but they're like billboard size and there are a bunch of them that go across the front there's like seven or eight and the entire thing was just a big marketing ad for bad times at the el royale had all the character posters and then the movie poster and i was just like yes this is awesome but we're going to go see First Man now. <laughs> so it was just kind of funny. I was just like, yeah, there was a lot of really good marketing for this. And I felt like the trailer was so perfect because it told you just enough to get you intrigued without giving anything away. Because I went into this 
expecting something completely different than what it was, but I was so glad for what it was. So it was not like I was disappointed that it didn't turn out to be that, but I didn't know enough to know what I was actually in. Lauren, what, what about you? You said in the Slack that it was not what you expected. Explain yourself. <laughs> I mean, I think I went into it because I'd seen the trailers and we talked about the trailers and it definitely presented a certain type of film. And I guess I was expecting it knowing that it was Drew Goddard and just the way that it looked, I was expecting something closer along the lines of cabin in the woods, a sort of a manipulation of the genre and maybe a kind of Tarantino esque treatment of it. Because like a lot of the imagery is very, we're going to talk about this. I think a lot of the imagery is very much like Tarantino and, and it's, it's kind of what we expect of that sort of the aughts doing, you know, the millennium doing 1969, doing the 1960s, what that looks like, what we thought it, you know, what we think it looks like, things like that. And it actually turned out to be much more serious. And I think much more, I want to say important, but I feel like that that's not a fair word to use. Much more like intelligent in a lot of ways than I expected it to. I expected it to be much more superficial than it was. And it actually had really interesting things to say, I thought, about the American character, about the experience of 1969, about the experience of sort of toxic masculinity and and just the characterization of all of these different people all of whom are really fascinating and, and particularly the the jeff bridges and their cynthia arvio character of being like you know these are actually very deep characterizations and i did not expect that i guess i expected at some level drew goddard does tarantino with that very superficial very cool but not terribly intricate or deep treatment of characterization. Kim, what about you? I wasn't sure what to expect really walking into it. I, I was surprised with the marketing because I felt like it was being, like Karen said, or I, I felt like it was being marketed very well. But I know I've been talking with a lot of people and maybe Karen said your analysis that people aren't watching TV. I have talked to so many people. I was just at my office today and one of my coworkers was trying to describe it because I think he was going to see it this weekend. And he was, he was going, well, and he was, you know, he was trying to describe the movie and he didn't even know the name. And I'm like, I felt like I saw that trailer so much. And then a couple of critics I saw it with at the screening said they knew nothing about it, didn't see anything, had no idea. So I was truly surprised because I really kind of, I loved those trailers. I loved that marketing. Walking into it, I know the approximation I think I made when we discussed it earlier, I believe I said it reminded me really of identity. So I guess I was probably expecting like Cabin in the Woods meets Identity. And that was, to me, it was just so much more the, you know, the intricacies of that, these characters and everything Lauren was just saying about what the film was saying down to just the visual flair. I, it was so much more even than what I was expecting walking into it that I wish everybody knew about it and would go see it at least once because damn it, this film deserves it. Yeah, we talk about movies aimed at adults. You know, you always see ads or articles from some critic 
about how this is a movie for adults, an original idea, and nobody went and saw it. And that seems to be happening a lot, usually with movies that I really enjoy. I hate when a movie that I enjoy just completely flies under the radar, for better or worse. And I know Lauren's probably going to roll her eyes. I would say The Man from U.N.C.L.E. is is in that, that same vein for me, even though they are two very different movies, just in terms of marketing and how the core audience for that really went for it, but not a lot of people outside of that bubble did. The marketing for this, I think, was really great because I talk about how I don't really keep up with the award season anymore like I used to. I'm not inundated with ads for things like I used to be. And yet I still was really intrigued by that. I thought if you saw the first trailer for this movie, you had to be hooked. And so when the reviews came out for it and people were like, oh, it's just discount Tarantino. I was like, that's a really simplistic way of describing this movie because there is so much depth and nuance. I think a lot of people who go see this are maybe disappointed that it's not Cabin in the Woods, that it's not The Martian because Drew Goddard also wrote that script. Drew Goddard has a very quick wit to him and there's a very slick contemporariness to his work and I think a lot of people were very surprised by this throwback it's set in 69 it's one location much like Cabin in the Woods but it's an anthology almost which is very Tarantino for me it worked it worked so well it harkened I think a lot back to like those old 1960s movies stuff like Violent Saturday if anybody's seen that movie Richard Fleischer I was into this and I'm very sad that it did not make money and now kind of the running joke is Drew Goddard goes into a studio and asks for a hundred million dollars or however much the budget is for a movie about a bunch of people going to a hotel that's kind of the joke that he's the entitled white guy who gets a huge budget to make this movie and it didn't make any money which I feel is again a very simplistic way of looking at it well which is depressing too because the box office what it's opening weekend we had venom so a wannabe franchise a star is born remake number what four depending on how you count and first man and a you know a story that we've already you know that we know the ending to in in what the top three and this was what number seven yeah it opened at number seven you know this is an original interesting film and People couldn't be bothered to go out. A lot of people are saying, oh, this is proof that you need to open at a fest. If this had opened at Toronto or something, it would have done better. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I think it might be. I think if this had opened even at LA Film Festival, it would have gotten some good buzz that could have really done it some, some good. I think this is a case where festivals really do help. I don't think that's always true, but I think in this case it is. Yeah, because it, it would have gotten a little bit more build up as being, you know, it looks like, and I, I mean, the big comparison that people keep on coming back to is Tarantino. Uh, it looks like Tarantino, but guys, it isn't Tarantino. This is different. And you would have gotten a little bit more of that and, and going into it, it you know, it might have done better. It's also, I mean, when you come down to it, it's an R-rated movie that's two hours and 20 minutes. It's already got some strikes against it just as a result of that, because a lot of people just aren't interested in going to a film that is essentially about a bunch of people in a hotel together and what happens that is going to be that long. And I mean, that was that kind of made me bulk initially. And I was interested enough 
in the story to to actually go and see it. And I, I loved it. I'm glad that I did. I don't think that it's too long. But immediately, like, I mean, I, I, even just talking to my roommate, you know, he was like, uh, I don't really want to, you know, spend two hours and 20 minutes on a film I might like. I thought the runtime was good. I mean, I can't say where they could have cut stuff. I was invested. I, I did notice it felt long, but I was never bored saying, oh my God, this is so goddamn long. I could have stood for it to even be a little bit longer. I was enjoying it all along. I never felt like it was too long at all. Same. At no point did I sit there and go, wow, this feels like, feel like it's dragging. Even a point, and I loved First Man, but there was even a point in First Man where I was like, wow, this is stretching a little bit. And I know I said in my review, there were places where I would have loved to have seen them go into more detail. I I wanted to see more out of it. So I could have dealt with it being longer. The only thing that I think was a little too long was it took way too long to get to Chris Hemsworth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was telling telling somebody that I feel like this could have been a really great Netflix series. Like this warrants 10 episodes. I would have watched it. Yes, it does. A separate episode for each character. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That would have been amazing. Yeah, I could have definitely seen a whole hour episode just on Hemsworth and his sex cult or what have you. (laughs) Uh, But we all have talked about Tarantino. And this is going to technically be the second film in in a calendar year with 1969 because... Tarantino has Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out in August, which is also about 1969. And I actually wrote an article for Heat Vision at the Hollywood Reporter looking at how this movie deals with 1969 in a way that I think Tarantino is going to completely miss the mark. I think it'd be worth talking about how this movie uses the time period. You never really know it's 69. You get a lot of illusions that it is the fact that there is the TV playing Nixon talking about Vietnam. And I actually did research on this for the article. He did three speeches in 69 about Vietnam, one of which introduced the term silent majority. So I don't know which speech that uh, specific scene in the movie is from, but he did three. Then there's also the discussion about there's a piece of film that Miles, Lewis Pullman's character, is hoarding of a famous man who is dead, who is essentially caught on film having sex with a woman that is not his significant other. That's the illusion. And who did we all think that that was? There are only a couple of options, but yeah. who did you guys go to when they keep bringing Kennedy. it up? Kennedy. JFK. I went with, since it was 69, RFK had been killed in 68. But then I also thought possibly MLK. I went JFK just with, and I think it was because I was drawing the Calneva connections. You know, Sinatra owned the Calneva. Their playground for Sinatra, playground for Marilyn Monroe. Just with when that resort was hip and when that was happening. Because um, I, I actually went RFK after the second time. I was like, oh, well, it could have been RFK. But my first instinct was JFK, but that was also pulling historical stuff, too. It just kind of made sense with the resort, made sense with the time period. And that was where my head started. I I mean, it's got to be one of the Kennedys. I don't I don't think it would be MLK simply because I don't think that in that time period, it would not be perceived as having that 
much of an effect on the perception of him. Not in 1969, maybe in 2018, we would have different feelings about it. But in 1969, the idea that a, a sitting president or that someone like RFK, who's, who's you know, this, this venerated political figure would be cut on film having sex with an, a woman that wasn't his wife, basically. Uh, I don't know if the same rea- if they would have had the same reaction to, to MLK. I went with, with those two just because there's this, this emphasis. Chris Hemsworth's character brings up sometimes the memory of a man is worth more than the man himself. And so I was kind of going with, like, who had a relatively, like, upsetting to find out if their reputation kind of sucked. And I figured JFK, we already knew he was kind of a dog. We know that in 1969. Well, but in 1969, there were a lot of those rumors, but nobody really knew for sure. And nobody wanted to ask that question, especially after he was assassinated. And the thing is that his legacy extended far, much farther than his brother's. And also, this is set in 1969, but it's made for a 2018 audience that's going to care more about JFK than RFK. That's true. The whole notion of Camelot... And just the veneration of the Kennedys and the, the experience of JFK is particularly this almost untouchable figure. And we know so much about JFK now, mm-hmm. but in the time that the film was set, like it would be one of those things that people kind of knew, but also really, like you're saying, Karen, really didn't want to Well, we also about. got a question about this from KT right. at K underscore two underscore the underscore T. She asked... Thoughts on the choice not to reveal who it is? Did we all want to know who it was, or do we prefer that Drew Goddard just lets it go unsolved? I was okay with it. Yeah, they chose to not know it. I was fine with it, and actually the fact that he didn't reveal it is another reason why I just assumed it was JFK. I felt like he kind of thought he didn't need to say more. I mean, I was kind of going, I came out of that so sure it was JFK, it didn't bother me. He didn't reveal it because I just assumed I was right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and we talk about Tarantino. Tarantino's doing 69. He's trying to say that it's not a Manson family movie, even though it's coming out on the anniversary of Sharon Kate's murder. Um, Oh, no, it got moved up. Oh, that's right. That's right. It got moved up. We see here there is a a Manson-esque family, a slaying, but it's not on par with Manson level. They only kill two people. It's not on the, the spectrum of, like, the Manson family. And I would say that Hemsworth's character is Manson-ish, but not 100%. Like, Manson wishes that he was a Hemsworth. And even though Manson... He's sexy, Charlie. He's sexy, Charlie Manson. He's Manson, he's Manson if he was a Hemsworth. <laughs> uh, is, I think, what we were all saying. But what I think this movie does better with 69 than Tarantino could ever possibly do. And I say this as a person who does like Tarantino movies. Yes, I know, I'm horrible. But Tarantino really just likes to recreate. He doesn't really have a lot to say about these time periods. You know, stuff like Django Unchained and Hateful Eight, stuff like that, they do bring up how racist the time period was or how sexist they were. But they're not uh, actually doing any deep nuance there. Yeah, that's not anything we don't already know. Right. Whereas here, I was really impressed by how... Drew Goddard is really interested in this whole concept of male mythologizing. The men are the ones who have these reputations. The men are the ones talking about themselves. And that's what we're stuck with. Poor Darlene, played by Cynthia Erivo, 
says that she's just sick of hearing men talk and all they do is talk but really they just want to fuck who they want and it doesn't really matter what they're saying and i really like that because in 69 as the 70s progressed we had so many we still have so many powerful men just who seem to speak because they like to hear the stuff that comes out of their mouth and as much as hemsworth is gorgeous i mean you watch his his speech that he has in front of the bonfire and you're just like yeah, it's pretty simplistic. Like, it's not really that great. It's kind of like a Scientology speech where they just use buzzwords and it doesn't really mean anything. So I, I don't feel that Tarantino has nearly that depth. Not to mention the fact that I love that Drew Goddard, between this and Cabin in the Woods, he's really interested in whether we have free will as humans. How much of our, our fate is predetermined? How much is rigged by some unseen god or just person holding like a magnifying glass over us i love that and i think it comes to really great effect in this movie i personally find tarantino generally and and i think that there are a couple of exceptions to this but generally i find tarantino incredibly shallow and he's very interested in aesthetic and he generally produces good aesthetic but it's not particularly a deep investigation of the time period. It's not a deep investigation of characters or anything like that. It's very self-aware and cool. Like he's always like, well, it has to sound good. And in some ways, Drew Goddard is almost making fun of people like Tarantino in the sense that Tarantino is a director and a writer who loves hearing himself talk. And he hears himself talk through, for the most part, through other people. Right. But he just goes on and on and on and his scripts go on and on with people just talking at each other. And how cool can I sound? How interesting can I sound? And when you really begin to pick it apart, it does come off as very, very shallow. So in some ways, he is the Chris Hemsworth character that, you know, like I'm going to sound really profound. I'm going to talk as though I know what I'm talking about. And really what I'm doing is very simplistic and very very nihilistic and and very and ultimately uninteresting it's just like i'm just tired of listening to you i also do think that this film does not fetishize violence it does not fetishize women in the way that um, tarantino does it does not treat this as something to be venerated or adored when there is violence in this film and it it's actually remarkably non-violent in some ways like it does there's not that much violence until these like brief bursts of it And the violence is treated very seriously. This is not, oh, that's so cool. It's, holy shit, what is happening? And that was the experience of watching it. Like, when the first gunshot goes off, it was shocking to me. And partially because it was built, you know, the film was beginning to build up to that. But also I was like, I did not know that it was going to happen. I didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen after that. Throughout the entire film, we've got that tension of violence is going to erupt and it's not going to be cool. It's not going to be fun. This is not going to be something that we're looking forward to. This is something that is actually going to horrify us. And I liked that about the film. I liked the fact that in, in a very stylized, in an otherwise very stylized film, it treated the violence as a very serious. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Like, I had heard the Tarantino comparisons before I went in to see it, and I kept coming back to thinking that Bad Times at the El Royale has the kind of depth and intelligence that people have decided to ascribe to Tarantino's films, even if he hasn't necessarily earned that. 
I completely agree with what you were just saying, Lauren, as far like one of the things that really stood out to me was there's no nudity. There's no sexual content, really. The violence is intended to be shocking it's not intended to be like "Ooh, look what we can do with blood you know it was every time that someone gets killed it has a purpose and it's a moment that makes you stop like oh my gosh what just happened you know and and it's just so brilliantly done i loved the way that goddard included those elements because it just it felt very thoughtful and very deliberate it didn't none of it ever felt like it was just, oh, well, we have a death scene here, so we're going to throw one in. It always felt like it was very intentional. Yeah, well, I would say yeah. that when Cynthia Erivo's Darlene hits Jeff Bridges' character in the head when he's trying to doper, yeah. and she hits him in the head with the bottle, that, I mean, got an audible reaction from the audience more than anything, because we all didn't expect it. That, I think, has more effect in this movie than than the actual gun violence does. Yeah. I mean, I came back to the word shallow as well. Those comparisons to Tarantino, it's its a shallow comparison. this That's a result of people looking at, I would say probably the aesthetic of the film. This is such a cool looking film. This is such a hip looking film, you know, with a little violence in there, they go right to Tarantino. It comes back down to everything that Karen and Lauren, you two have just been saying in terms of these female characters are not fetishized to the point of anything that we see in a Tarantino film. The crafting of the violence is totally different. I did not hear that until after I saw it, but I think I saw this like two weeks before opening. So the word was just starting to go around, but even watching it a second time through, I, I'm not a huge Tarantino fan. I think Reservoir Dogs is really the only one of his I've liked. And, but it, the comparison didn't really stick for me. I didn't see it. Let's start discussing characters. And we're going to pair some of them together just because we have seven to deal with. So we don't want to be here forever. So let's start with the characters that I think have the least amount of marketing, which is John Hamm and Lewis Pullman. And I know Kim has thoughts on Miles Miller, the character, because... My, 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 my sweet baby. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. So yeah, Lewis Pullman plays Miles Miller, who is the everything at the El Royale. He's the bartender. He's the manager. He's the maid. He's everything. And then you have John Hamm, who plays the vacuum salesman, Laramie Seymour Sullivan. And he's also the G-Man, which I love that we got John Hamm to play an FBI guy in the, the 60s, because he's got that look that you would just expect the movie really does a good job of blending like 1950s paranoia, which was still happening in the late sixties with the modern day. Because it was the Nixon administration. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I my mom, my mom's big complaint was that she wanted more of, of his character. Cause he's dispatched fairly quickly in the grand scheme of the movie. We, we introduce him. He's the first story we get, but then he's the first one to die. I did love his, uh, his moment with his daughter, you know, morbid. Who taught you that word? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he comes in, it's like, ah, oh, John John Ham doing John Ham. It was like, okay, yes, he has sexy glasses and on. And it's your supper coat. Those I swear, those glasses. Any man in film with those glasses on, <laughs> I'm all over that for some strange reason. I can't explain it. But then that moment with the scene on the phone with the daughter happens and I'm like, 
See, it was so funny for me because as I was watching it, I was still totally buying that he was not who he said he was. That And he finds the bug in the phone. So I was like, okay, this call is being staged until the point where he says morbid. Yeah. <laughs> Where'd you learn that word? Then I was like, oh, he really is talking to his kid. That was okay. such a great character moment, I thought. It was. <laughs> and I love how he dies trying to be the hero he's trying to be a hero i know this whole film is about being mistaken it's about screwing up it's about and that's sort of that initial act like him making that choice despite appearances the better choice for him to make would have been to actually listen to to j edgar hoover don't interfere and follow orders no exactly yeah follow orders yeah and instead he makes that choice and and throughout but throughout the entire film you get those moments of like that moment the choice that he makes kind of is what turns into everything happening in the entire film because it's the reason why the uh, younger sister is let go it's the reason why you know that her trying to de-brainwash her sister doesn't work it's all of that stuff and it just sort of cascades out as a result of him being like i want to try to do the right thing and the right thing and the right thing is is the wrong thing and so it is this entire this entire film is basically people making mistake after mistake after mistake and making it worse and worse and worse and not talking to each other, not being able to repair it ultimately. That's one thing that I kept coming back to as we were watching it too, is I just kept thinking about how how often in life we assume or we draw conclusions of what's happening based on what we have seen without knowing the entire story. And that happens several times throughout this film, but it happens all the time. Just in my day-to-day life, people come into my office and think they know my job or they, you know, or I will talk to someone and I just assume that this is happening with them. And, and it's exactly what you're saying, Lawrence, because people aren't talking to each other. They're not communicating the whole story. You know, if he had come in and announced himself into that hotel room, then perhaps Dakota Johnson's character might have, she would have still been on, on edge, but she might have at least heard him out and said okay well i need help with my sister or whatever or yeah. it wouldn't have probably resulted in his death if he hadn't just come in guns blazing you know he comes in looking like he's there to attack them and so she's defensive so he's there to save the girl she's defensive of them protecting her and her sister neither side knows what the real story of what's happening and that's that's why there's a problem there's so. one moment before she shoots him in the chest he says something like wait and you're just like, oh my god, listen to him. If you just listen to him, like, don't shoot him. Listen to what he has to say. And then maybe you, you might actually be on the same side. But of course, she, she doesn't. And it's understandable why she doesn't. It's all of those events of just like, you know, if I, if I only hadn't done this, if I only hadn't done that, none of this would have happened. Well, then you also have Miles, played by... Y- yes. yes. Played by Lewis Pullman, who is... The one who is the only character that is trying so desperately hard to repair his issues. He's a heroin addict, which many 
young men who came out of Vietnam were at this point. He doesn't want to kill people because he's been a sniper in the war. We get his story last, which I thought was really cool, just tying everything together. But so much of his plot is wanting to confess and be absolved of his actions. And he constantly thinks that Jeff Bridges' character, Father Flynn, really is a priest. And at the end, when they're they're all tied up and... Chris Hemsworth's character is like, who wants to tell him? (laughs) It's just your heart breaks for him because he's so desperate to have somebody listen to him and to tell him that he's okay. And I think that that's where making this subtly be a Vietnam story is so so heart-wrenching because so many of these men went to war. And Vietnam is not the war we revere so many of these soldiers came back here to be ridiculed because of decisions that their government had made. And he just wants somebody to tell him that he he's okay. You know, he's not damned to hell. When you first find out a little bit about him, it's him basically saying, I've killed a lot of people. How many? 123 or however many it is. And it's like, holy shit, he's yeah. some weird-ass serial killer who's been living in this hotel by himself. Like, what did they walk into? And then you find out, nope, that's not it at all. And again, it's drawing these conclusions based on only a little tiny bit of the story. There's actually a moment of laughter in the theater that I was in when he says 123. Everyone in the audience laughed. That was the same in my theater. It, yeah, including me. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah, it was the same thing. It's just like, you know, we're going to find out that this kid is a serial killer or something like that. And of course, it makes sense. You're just like, of course, he was he was in Vietnam. It's 1969. He killed a lot of people. And and that explains the heroin addiction. That explains <laughs> the PTSD. That, ex, you know, explains all of this. That heartbreaking moment when he has mm-hmm. access to the gun and he's just like, I don't want to kill anyone anymore. And then he does, and he has to, and it's probably the one time that he actually killed someone that that he did something good. He did a good job. But it's heartbreaking at the same time because it takes so much out of him. He He's not a killer. He doesn't want to kill people. He doesn't want to hurt people. And he's got all of these lives that are on his conscience and all these experiences that just he can never get rid of. That performance, I thought, was so spot on. I mean, I... You're you're biased. I'm completely (laughs) biased. But, I mean, in the hands of a different actor, that could have been totally different. I know I wasn't surprised by the Vietnam thing. I was kind of assuming it when they started going into the heroin, kind of about midway through. It was like, okay, I bet he's a traumatized vet. The wide-eyed earnestness that he brought to that character because you lose that so much with Vietnam. We see it all the time with World War II, but you forget in Vietnam, these were just kids. These were just kids that were being sent over and coming back to a country that was not receptive. Lives were ruined. You know, men never recovered from this. You get the humanity really in the 70s in terms of with Vietnam, but in terms of, you know, all the movies about the grizzled veterans, these were just kids that were coming back. Pullman really got to kind of the crux of where that needed to be in the hand, you know, if with a different portrayal, I don't think that would have worked as well. I'm waiting for Kim to have her thirst moment, which we will give you right now. <laughs> <laughs> that second time through, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> the entire first time, I'm like, who is this guy? Where do I know him from? And then I saw the name, I'm like, oh, Pullman, there we go. <laughs> He does look a lot like his dad. <laughs> he does. I told, I saw, as soon as I saw that last name, I was like, 
Why do I feel like Kim would be really into this right now? (laughs) (laughs) It feels really weird that Bill was a, you know, an early, early crush. And I'm watching that going, oh, oh, okay. It must be, oh, it's something there. (laughs) I'm sitting here blushing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then we also have Jeff Bridges and Cynthia Erivo as Father Flynn slash Doc O'Kelly and Darlene Sweet, respectively. Queen Cynthia. <laughs> I love both of them. It was so great not to see Jeff Bridges playing a grizzled cowboy who I couldn't understand. I feel he's really leaned into that performance post True Grit, just constantly acting like he's a cowboy from the 1800s. I thought straw just grew out of his mouth naturally <laughs> after that. I, I was so happy to like remember, oh yeah, he can act and it's really good. He was so he's good. He's so good oh. in this. When he yeah. has that moment where he's explaining to her about his mind going oh, and how you, my- you wake up one day and you're, you're, you don't know who you are, you, you're somewhere else. The camera's like on his face, you get to see the fear that he has. I felt for him and... Yeah. I know a lot of people don't like how he ends the movie, playing the priest role for Miles and giving him the absolution. I thought it was it was just perfect. The fact that he doesn't remember who he is half the time, but he is able to convincingly or possibly rely on what he knows about Catholicism to give him absolution, I thought that was really great. I like that we didn't force a relationship between him and Darlene. Which I thought, oh yeah, Tarantino would have done it. Tarantino would have done oh, it. Tarantino, would. Yeah. but but I like that they end the movie with you know maybe they're just gonna hang out and talk about how they both have a lot of money together. I thought he was really <laughs> good. Well, he liked her singing. To me, it was just as simple as that. When he comes to the door of her hotel, it's like I really liked your singing. It's sweet. <laughs> <laughs> He says to her, it's it's nearing the end. And then like the Chris Hemsworth character has, uh, what's his name? Billy Lee is like, you know, if you, mm-hmm. you've got to sing. And he's like, no, he, he yeah. doesn't deserve to hear you sing. It's such a wonderful moment. I, yeah, I, I loved Jeff Bridges in this. I, I loved the nuance that he got out of that character. And again, a character that could have been very broad, that could have been very like a, an extreme figure in some way. And he, he wasn't. He was very likable and very lovable. And he believed in, in sort of the connection that the two of them were experiencing as friends, as, as whatever else they were going to be. It was like they would never have met out of these circumstances. And they did. And, and they were they were friends by the end of the by the end of the film and i was convinced watching that not only would they never have met in any other possible scenario but they both knew that there was just sort of this subtext of like they know that this meeting was by chance it does it, it's not a like oh we're you know meant to be together it's not even like that it's just we're two people that just happened upon each other we went through this really traumatic and you know incident together and the two actors just are so good separately and together listening to jeff bridges when he was telling that story about finding out that his memory is going they don't specifically say alzheimer's i don't think but listening to him tell that story it just it brought tears to my eyes because it, it i felt like i was listening to my grandfather after he was diagnosed with alzheimer's he nailed it he captured that so beautifully it was one of those moments and i don't have those as often as I wish I did but it was one of those moments where I just sat there and just was like this is an incredible performance 
and then to watch what Cynthia Erivo does throughout the film too, not only in what she's saying, but so much of her performance is in her face, her reactions to things. And then that incredible powerhouse voice that she has. I mean, it was just, I was like, my dream is for her to get an Oscar nomination for this performance. She's, she's just awesome. I would say this is almost a musical because of how often she, oh, yeah. she's, they're singing in this and I am all for it. I would argue that they should campaign for musical for the Golden Ooh, Globes. Uh-huh. I'm all for that. Whatever gets this some attention. She's essentially Darlene Love. She's introduced, they're, they're singing the crystal, he's a rebel, which I thought was great. And she, then she gets propositioned by Xavier Dolan. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's wonderful. You know, it's a black woman, and we know with privilege, the most besmirched person on, on the planet is, is a, the black woman. As Darlene, she's a woman that you don't need to know all of her background to know that she's had a tough life. You don't need to see her be propositioned by Xavier Dolan to know she's had to struggle and pay her dues. And yet she's never really had a bad demeanor. You know, she mentions to Father Flynn singing, singing. You know, it's just it's just another opportunity for her to sing even though she's getting fucked over by everybody at every chance. And she still wants to be a good person. But I I love that at the end of the movie, when it's just everybody's tied to chairs, she's just like, I'm I'm so exhausted. I'm just tired of hearing men talk. I would rather (laughs) listen to the rain. She just shuts him down. It's it. She, she totally lays out the mood that I think every woman has had this year, which is just, we're sick of hearing men talk about how fucking awesome they are. And meanwhile, us women are over here having to clean up your mess and deal with all the bullshit and just just mm-hmm. shut up. Just shut up. I Shut up, Chris Hemsworth, and just wear those pants. <laughs> exactly. I just was like, <laughs> she's telling you to sit down and sh- look pretty. And you know what? I support all of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the movie, the movie lets her do that. That's the other thing. She does that and he is speechless. He doesn't know how to respond. It's like he's suddenly been revealed to be this frightened little boy, basically. And he has no clue what to do with that or how to react. Or, and he eventually gets, kind of gets it back and everything. But there's just this moment of like, uh, what? It's wonderful. And the movie allows her that, this wonderful moment of triumph where he, he isn't able to respond to her. He isn't able to say like, no, you're, you're just a bitch or whatever else. You know, she actually gains a great deal of power over him in that moment. She can see through him. It's a really dynamic look at privilege. The concept of a a black woman standing up to a white guy and just telling him to shut his mouth. And it's, it's so good. It's so heartening to see. Well, the thing is too, though, that moment only happens because she's at the point where she knows she has nothing left to lose. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, which which I think is why the the worst insult that that happens in the movie is when he Billy Lee looks at her and he says, "I've heard better." And I was just like, "No, no, you don't get to say that, Chris Hemsworth. She is an angel. You don't get to say that, you son of a bitch." But then we also have we're slowly getting to Hemsworth, everybody. Uh, then we also have the Summer Spring Sisters, Emily and Rose played by Dakota Johnson and Kaylee Spaney, respectively. Dakota Johnson is the weakest link because she has seems to have the least amount to do. Well, I don't think she was weak. I mean, she definitely doesn't have a lot of character moments. Yeah. 
No, it's not. It's not a bad performance per se. I just felt that her character is just. The, I loved what I saw, and I think she's fantastic. But I feel like compared to the other characters, she doesn't have the same grist yeah. in the writing. Maybe I see where you're going, and I mean, I loved everything that I saw, but I wanted more. Yes, like that's the thing. Yeah, how she dives into that that kind of that complicated relationship with her sister and everything that's going on i i felt she had a very good feel for that character and that was such an interesting fascinating character but you know the first probably you know first what act of the movie it kind of hinges on that mystery of what's going on there so you're not allowed to dive too deep into that because then it kind of you lose it when John Hamm's character goes. So that's kind of, I guess, a little bit of a dis- disservice to the character. And see, I saw it differently. It sets it up where you're just, it's again, it's these expectations. You think you know what's going to happen. And so it sets it up where you get the impression that Dakota Johnson, who is a gun wielding, you know, feisty badass who drives across the country. Oh, oh I'm going to get my sister. And I'm going to take her home and I'm going to kill anybody who gets in my way. And so you think, oh, she's going to be the badass hero of the story. But nope. Guess what? It's the angelic singing angel over in the corner that everybody dismisses. I- she ends up being the hero of the story. Oh, so we're saying that this is a critique of white feminism? I didn't see that. I agree, but I think that in order to pull that off, the the film needed to pay more attention to Dakota Johnson. We actually did need a little bit more development of her character and a more development of her relationship with her sister and why she was doing what she was doing. And we get some of it, but it just doesn't go within with the same depth, I think. And part of it is because she's not on screen for the same amount of time. Um, there's a lot of dialogue between Darlene and Father Flynn and just the two of them talking with each other and learning about each other. Yeah, so it isn't just the two of them being off screen, it's, you know, or doing their own thing. It's actually them interacting. We don't get to see the Dakota Johnson character interact with anyone that much up until the point that she kills John Hamm and then and things, you know, everything goes pear-shaped. And so we needed, in order to get to the point that I, I, I agree that, that I feel like that that's what the film is trying to do, but I'm not certain that the film is being successful in that because it does not give her character the development that it gives everybody else. Well, I just, I think that their character, I mean, yeah, you do get them as, as a focus at one point, but the thing is that they're really there as an excuse to bring Chris Hemsworth's cult leader to that hotel for all the other shit that goes down. It's, yeah, but that's it's one of the much problems. less about them than think it's going to be. I think that that's one of the problems is that it was just sort of there. I felt like I knew the John Hamm character much better than I than I kn- than I knew her, and she's on screen more than he is probably. But at the end of it, and I feel like a, I knew lot, a lot of it about was them. And, but a lot of it was because she really, like, the only person that she really interacts with in any meaningful way, she interacts with Miles, and she interacts with her sister. And her sister's out to lunch. Her sister's, like, off in La La Well, and... she has an excuse. <laughs> her sister, her sister is, her sister is overpowered by the sexual by potency of Chris Hemsworth. She got to sleep in the big house. Um, but, but because of that, because of that, we we don't get to see her outside of that at all. Whereas we do get to see all of the other characters interacting with each other more. 
before all, all hell breaks loose. I thought she had some really great scenes with Chris Hemsworth. I wanted more because when, when you get to that third act when they're actually like sparring off of each other back and forth, you know, when she's like, you caught me on a bad night, it, they have this great banter and I wanted more of it. And it also seemed to imply that there was more of a familiarity than we saw outside of the like two scenes that they're interacting. The biggest problem yeah. that I had with Dakota Johnson's character and the, the Summer Springs in general is that the movie really hinges on poor Rose being damaged from the jump because she's been, I assume the, uh, the illusion was she'd been molested yeah. as a kid. And I was like, okay, if you're going to bring in sexual violence and molestation, I feel like there needs to be something because it, it's essentially used as a gateway saying she was fucked up from the beginning. You know, this, this was just a matter of time. And I know that's Goddard again saying, you know, how much is free? Do we have free will and how much is, is our environment trying to screw us over? But I feel that when you're using that as a crutch, you need to develop that <laughs> or it looks like a crutch. I didn't really go there. I mean, I went towards, uh, I just assumed they were both from an abusive house. And then I went to the Manson family. Those girls in the Manson family just runaway teens looking for acceptance. And she found acceptance with Billy Lee. She found somebody who didn't hit her. You know, see, she found somebody who let her let him let her sleep in the big house with him. Now that age difference—that's well, that's the point. Yeah, that's the point. Go there, but <laughs> we've danced around the subject. Ha ha ha! See what I did there? Uh, long <laughs> enough. So we got to talk. We got to talk Hemsworth. Hemsworth plays Billy Lee, the cult leader, and I just absolutely in love with every single element of his performance, <laughs> from the dancing whilst eating pie which I think is fantastic to the fact that his, <laughs> his pants are held up by God's good humor or other. And that's Hold it. on. I have one question though. How the hell long was that pie in that case? <laughs> he had courage. It had been, been, probably been a while. I mean, everybody else ate it. I'm assuming that. Yeah, the pie was Miles, fine. I know, but is Miles making fresh pie every day just in case there Miles are guests? Miles is bored. In between that ending scene, <laughs> They obviously all had food poisoning. <laughs> yeah. That would have You know, I mentioned this when we did the review on the regular episode. I know that everybody's saying Chris Hemsworth's playing Brad Pitt in California. I think he's playing Brad Pitt in California and Thelma and Louise a little bit. It's a mixture because so much of that performance is aimed at women. You know, the fact that he does not wear a shirt buttoned up the entire time. I mean, it's just being distracted by how hot he is and that is the point yeah. that is the entire point to his performance is that as women we have to like mitigate okay he's really fucking hot but he's horrid and how it's seductive is well even exactly. just the way he's introduced the first time you see him he's standing over what's her name the rose. sister rose, rose and he's standing over her and and he's like silhouetted behind the, like in front of the sun and so you just see him like radiating light <laughs> and, it turns and then he gets naked and then, and then he I, takes off his clothes exactly then he takes all his clothes off <laughs> and i was just like okay six how old is she i don't even know okay like, hold 16 on 16 year old me how many of you were sitting there watching it going just turn around please just turn around Oh, yeah. I was sitting there. Why is well, technically he is turned around, but there's backlighting. I know. Exactly. I was like, God damn 
you, Drew Goddard. You, none of it. But he knows. He obviously knows my theory, which is that seeing him naked brings about the end times. <laughs> Drew Goddard is playing with us. Yeah. But I mean, and that's he's the thing. Like, us. like when he's doing his, like, testifying in front of that bonfire and he's talking about how they're going to have a tussle um, and he makes those two girls beat the fuck out of each other. I literally looked at my mom and I was like, I love you, but I'd slit your fucking throat right now. <laughs> She's like, as long as you know I do the same. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it really, it really does, as you're as you're saying, it really does bring home the sense that like this is I don't know if if men understand this. I I straight men might not, I bet the gay men at least do, but the the experience of of seeing a man like that and just being like yes absolutely i will kill whoever you want to like but that that feeling and that and the film does it really really well is that it it makes sense immediately first of all he's he's not just good looking he's very dynamic and his performance is very dynamic um actually you know talking about brad pitt but the the place that i leapt to was um young brando in a streetcar named desire yes and it's the same sort of experience of like you are horrible and i know that you're horrible but oh my god you're hot like you're god like i just don't care yeah it's it's just like it's that animalistic nature of it also it's just like it's that intensity and it's very disturbing because, you know, if you look at A Streetcar Named Desire, it's like the, the guy is a horrible, brutish rapist. And you completely understand why Stella is like sexually obsessed with him. And it's the same thing with Billy Lee. It's like, you know, he's, this is a murderer. This is someone who is gaslighting people. He is manipulating these girls. He is, you know, forcing people to fight each other. He wants to kill people. And you totally get why they will do that for him. And it works perfectly. I don't know anyone else other than Hemsworth that could actually pull out, pull off that sense of humor and the sense of just sexuality that is just there. I'm sorry. What did you want Hemsworth to pull out? <laughs> the Freudian slip right there. And, and watch, if you go see the movie a second time, I'm not even kidding. You, you start to just like objectify him more really i was like looking like the lines on his body a body doesn't have that many lines on them okay and like the fact that the oh, pants the pants are just being held up by uh, gravity and big dick energy like that's all that's keeping it together but i also think like like hemsworth's performance is really good mm -hmm. just like yeah. the way he plays with people the looks on his face when, when rose tells emily oh she killed those people i'm sorry and the way he just <laughs> looks at, at dakota johnson he's like she's sorry <laughs> it's just like totally fucking with her moment and i was literally like the best part of the movie where i i literally i, I told everybody i'm like there's a line of dialogue in this movie that got me i was just like ovaries were exploding is when poor dakota johnson this is where like you see the hope just go out of her eyes is when she tells him you know rose isn't his and he literally stands there and the way he says are you mine and she's like mm -hmm. of course i'm like fuck yeah i understand <laughs> you girl i get it okay i i want him okay it's a problem but i think that's a testament to drew goddard and and chris hemsworth like knowing the female gaze and indulging yeah. it, but also making you remember women, this is the problem. Like we, we hate ourselves for it. We hate being damaged by horrific men, but at the same time, that's the allure. <laughs> I also love that they don't try to explain him. No. 
you know, he's just this guy he's that just, white guy. Yeah. apparently popped out of the sun and started like luring girls away <laughs> on beaches. And <laughs> I, I'm telling you, that he's is Lucifer. so amazingly perfect. I can't even believe it. He needs to. He, he really needs, needs to play Satan. It is. It is perfect. I, I was telling him, and I, I said it on the podcast too, but I will repeat it. I mean, Scientology is wasting their time with like any other celebrity they could get. Like, no, get Hemsworth. I've got my hands full I'm enough trying to get Tom out. Don't make me go in there and get Chris too. <laughs> Just all we all agree, Deep Purple owes their their second wind in 2018 to yep. To dancing Hemsworth, that gift. I wish I. Everybody needs to go to Esquire and read the Tyler Coates piece that he wrote about Hemsworth. It is the funniest thing ever. I'm I've read it. To and I'm angry about it. Yeah, he's like the he's hangry. He's hangry. That's the word. Corn green. Corn green. Thank you. <laughs> and it's great. It's great. Um, and just everything that is in it is a thought that I have had. So yeah, Hemsworth pole vaulted to number one. Every other man got like kicked down <laughs> to their respective places. Poor Oscar Isaac. He, he just... hit every rung of that ladder as he fell. <laughs> he did. He he is Melissa McCarthy falling off that cruise ship in Bridesmaids. <laughs> just like pinballed down. So overall thoughts, what do we all think? Um, do we see any Oscar potential what are what are our overall takeaways from this? I will say I don't think it'll get any Oscar love. If it does, maybe screenplay, but that's a stretch. I really don't think it will. But I would love to see it. I I enjoyed the hell out of this movie. I think this movie's made for me in more ways than one. Chris Hemsworth is God. That's all I got. I would be absolutely <laughs> thrilled to see this get in for production design. The sets and yes. the entire look of this thing is just impeccable so I, I think that'd be great i'd echo that for production design definitely in a in an ideal i'd be really happy world i would love to see script uh cynthia revo and jeff bridges but it's you know those are my happy days i would i would love to see production design though it's a much better film than people are giving it credit for. And it's beginning to really piss me off that there are so many critics who are like, oh, Star is Born is the greatest film ever made. And they're, and they're just like, oh, but this sucks. Just like you don't know yeah. what films are. We apparently. live in a world where we're going to see Chris Pine junk and Chris Hemsworth talked about how someone gets to sleep with him in the big house. I feel like we're just like this year sucks politically and just like in the world, but but movies are trying to help us women. They're trying so hard <laughs> to make it. Chris Evans just need to catch yes, up. Yes, the are, making are it trying their damnedest to help, like, spackle over the problems, except for Chris Pratt, who is the worst Chris. He's not a Chris anymore. Like, yeah. I, thought, I think that he got dismissed from the Christmas. He just, no, he's, we don't even <laughs> Well, of course, uh, that's going to close out this bonus episode. Go see Bad Times, the El Royale, support original filmmaking and Chris Hemsworth's abs. Because he's making a Men in Black movie. I don't see that being a movie where he's going to have his shirt off for a long time. I feel like he's going to find a reason. He's in a suit. It will be just... He's going to find a reason, but the whole crux of the movie isn't going to be him being, like, naked and constantly undressed. Give me my, my dreams, Kristen. Give me my dreams. He's got, <laughs> he's, he's got to fight aliens naked because of reasons. Because the aliens have, like, magicked away his clothes. <laughs> 
Tessa Thompson needs something to gaze at in that movie. Yeah, really. He's going to fight aliens without his clothes because uh, whoever is directing that is an auteur. If Bradley Cooper told him to do it, y'all would be thinking it was amazing. Give him an Oscar, okay? (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) This is your reminder that Star is Born kind of sucks. You can uh, tell us your thoughts on Bad Times, Theo Royale, Chris Hemsworth, all of that at our Twitter at Citizen Dame Pod. You can also get in touch with us on Facebook.com slash Citizen Dame or email us your thoughts directly at CitizenDamePod at gmail.com. We also have our website, CitizenDamePod.com, which is going to have the show notes to our individual reviews that we have written about the movie. And if you want to continue to support our thirst traps and all sorts of fun stuff, head over to patreon.com slash citizen dame. I, you know, we really should start thinking of a Chris Hemsworth centric merchandise item. We'll come up with something. We I think we could find out. one. We could, we could think of one. Yeah, we'll come up with one. Uh, and then, of course, you can get in to, uh, touch with us individually. I am on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Karen Peterson, where are you? I am at Karen M. Peterson on Twitter and Instagram. Kimberly Pierce. At KPierce624. And Lauren Humphreys Brooks. I am at LH Business. It's a little too quiet in here. It gives me the willies. Did you think you could just take what's mine? I wouldn't come a hunt. No, I figured you would. And I'd be ready when he did. Are you lost, Father? Can I confess something to you? I'm not really a priest. All starts with a simple choice. Would you mind opening the door? No, I ain't gonna do that. Which side are you on? Right, wrong, God or no God? Red or black? I've done horrible things. Everybody, shit happens. Get the whiskey.